You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Uh, we're glad you guys are here. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Luke chapter 1? That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 1. Uh, Last week, we started a series on the book of Luke, and we told you that Luke was a physician who traveled with the Apostle Paul and then later wrote a letter, uh, actually two letters, Luke and the book of Acts, to uh, a guy named Theophilus trying to explain to him the certainty of what had been taught about Jesus. So as we look at the gospel of Luke, what you're recognizing in this is is making sure, Luke is making sure he's presenting to us two things. One, uh, the God who makes all things possible, and then second, Secondly, the Jesus who really was. So that's who Luke is presenting to us. Uh, And I was thinking about this as we get get into this next uh, portion of scripture. Uh, I was thinking about the notion of God throughout history and how people have interacted with God throughout history. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a time period where, where there hasn't been some sort of thought about a higher power. Now, the interesting part is what you do with the higher power and how you interact with them and how you, how you deal, like most people think maybe, uh, or some people throughout history have thought maybe God is angry. And so if God is angry, you know what I've got to do for him because he's mad? I have to please him. So how do I please him? Uh, I'll sacrifice things to him. So uh, imagine that you are in a farming community and it's not raining. Well, that must mean God is mad. So I will sacrifice. uh, I I will give him something to make him happy. Now, all of a sudden it's raining. You're like, great. God is happy. What must I do? Uh, I got to sacrifice to keep God happy. You can see that whether God is mad or he's happy, the sacrificial system is exhausting. So there's a dynamic interplay between people and God throughout history. The question is, what is the proper dynamic interplay between God and people throughout history. In the 16th uh, century, the late 16th century and the early 17th century, uh, there was an intellectual movement uh, in Europe that was basically running away from the teachings of the church. And this term came out uh, and this philosophical train of thought was birth. I don't think it was birth there. It was probably existing before, but here's when it came out. It was called deism. Deism, uh, late 16th century, early 17th century, uh, was a philosophical movement. Here's, here's what deism believes. Deism is a belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator, who does not intervene in the universe. So deism says, I look around the world and I think there's got to be some sort of supreme power who's made uh, this possible, who's created all of this, but there's no way that supreme power has any desire to intervene in the world. So he is a creator and then he is absent going forward. I started thinking about us as, as believers. If you're here and you're a Christian, I was like, man, I don't know that this isn't that far from how we act on certain days. So here's, here's some deistic comments that you might have said uh, unintentionally, or here's what this sounds like in the day-to-day. Uh, you, you say something like this, uh, I just know that's never going to happen. That thing, that's just never going to happen. I just know it. I just know that's never going to happen. Um, oh, that person, oh, oh they're never going to change. That person's never going to change. Uh, oh, that thing, that, that's just the way that is. You know what? That's the way that's always going to be. I tell you what, let's just go ahead and leave that alone. Uh, you know, this, this, this thing that I'm, that I'm going through, this is my burden. Uh, maybe this is my cross to carry. And the truth is, I'll just be here for the rest of my life. These are the kind of things that people say. And when we say that, we are basically saying, and this is key, when you say those kind of things, you are basically saying, 
there is a God, but he is not going to intervene in my universe. There is a God, but he is not going to intervene in my universe. And so I'm glad you're here today because what we want to do is open to the book of Luke and realize a few things. One is that God wants a dynamic relationship with you. He doesn't want a stale, boring, religious, rigid relationship. He wants a dynamic relationship with you. More than that, he wants to communicate to you and have you communicate to him. And he wants to lead you somewhere. He wants to do something on your behalf. And when things come up, God wants you to believe that he will intervene in your universe. Luke is making sure that Theophilus understands the God we are talking about is not a creator who is now distant or not a God who's mad all the time that you got to sacrifice for. This is a dynamic God. God is real, God is active, and God is unstoppable. That is what Luke is trying to present to his friend Theophilus. So in chapter one, starting in verse five, let's read this together. <clears throat> in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, one of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. <clears throat> now, barrenness is difficult in any time, in any place, but it was particularly difficult in this time period for the Israelites because not being able to have kids meant that there was no one to take care of you. As you got older, having kids was basically the equivalent of like a 401k. Like, I have an investment called my children. They, will, they have to take care of me. I'll kill them, right? Like, that's... <laughs> That's the mindset that you had at this time. They had no stock in future generations. Their name went in. This was a big deal for them. And if you think about this narrative, like Elizabeth and Zachariah, for years they had hoped for a son. And just, just go into the story for a second. Like year after year, they had cycled through this hope and disappointment cycle, hope and disappointment cycle. Maybe there was a month where Elizabeth woke up and felt nauseous and she was dizzy. And that surge of exhilaration and that hope rose up in her. But then a couple days, maybe a week later, there's that heartbreaking disappointment that sets in again. And she goes, oh God, again, how is this going to be the case? Or maybe along the way there was miscarriages involved. We don't know the narrative, but we know that year after year, there was a cycle. Month after month, there was a story where she and her husband were not getting pregnant. And they had come to terms with the fact. They had resolved to believe that they were never going to have children. And by this point, a permanent disappointment had set in on their lives. A permanent disappointment. A new way of being, a new reality had set in on their lives. And the likelihood is that people around them had talked about this. People around them would ask, why don't they have kids? What's wrong with them? Maybe God's against them. What's, what's their story? Is Zachariah and Elizabeth not doing well in the home? There was probably rumors going around about why they weren't having kids. So my question is, do you have something like this in your life? something in your life that you want to see God do, and you can't understand why God hasn't done this thing for you. You go, this doesn't make sense, God. Why don't we have kids? We'd make great parents, and yet the kids aren't coming. Or, or, or for a lot of our crowd, you may ask, uh, God, why am I not married? I'm watching everyone else get married. I hate the summertime, God. I hate it. Everyone gets married, and I get invited. And I'm a bridesmaid, and those dresses are expensive. I'm going to spend $1,000 next summer, and it's not on me. I got a fake smile and hold stuff for this other girl to be happy, but it's not my turn. And then you go to weddings. You ever go to a wedding as a single person who's out of college? Oh, man, that's the worst place in the world to be because everybody comes up to you and they're like, oh, baby girl, you're next. Don't worry. You're next. 
Or if you have the rude friends that come along and they're like, no, girl, you're not, you're not single for a season. You're single for a reason. Ha, ha, ha. I just, it's rude. I told you it's rude. No one is ruder than old, older ladies at weddings. They just come up and they want to sit by you. And, oh, darling, what's wrong with you? No, no guys like you. Or if it's a guy, what's wrong with you, son? Do you not have a job? Like, there's no girl like you. You know, and it's the, the joke of don't worry, you're next. Don't worry, you're next. And we always joke to say, if you're ever at a funeral with that old lady, go up to her and say, oh, but don't worry, you're next. <laughs> don't worry. You're, you'll be next. It's great. Just, just keep praying. Your time's coming. <clears throat> don't do that. That's really, that's really rude. Don't do that. <clears throat> but people could look on your life and they could say, you don't have this thing, so God must be punishing you or God must be uh, against you or something like that. But the scripture makes it really clear that God is not punishing them. They are not sinners in this particular story. Now we're all sinners, but, but they have not sinned and now are paying consequence for their sin. The scripture said they were righteous before God. They walked in uprightness, yet they weren't getting from God what they thought. And that was leading to disappointment, but it wasn't punishment. That's significant. So verse eight, now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is talking about Zechariah. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Every time someone sees an uh, angel in the Bible, they're stricken with fear. They run away. They fall down. The angel's like, relax, get up, don't die. That whole thing. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Can you hear the joy in the angel Gabriel? And you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Not only will you be glad, but many will be glad. This is great news. I have been sent from the presence of God to bring to you great news. And this uh, verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's a picture of this Old Testament Nazarite vow, uh, a set apart people for God. Verse 16, and he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in spirit and uh, the power of Elijah. Elijah is this massive Old Testament prophet figure. And, and Gabriel's going, your son is going to be like the Elijah of the Old Testament. That's how big of a deal this is. This is national repentance happening based on the life of your son. This is great news. And then he goes on to say, and, and the, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom uh, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He is not only a great prophet like Elijah, he's not only going to lead la he's not only going to lead national repentance, he is going to go before a greater son, a greater prophet, a greater uh, king, the one who is coming, who is the Messiah. Your son has a massive role. Your prayer has been heard. This is great. News, verse 18, and Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Zacharias, is like, man, that's, that's great. I'm sure you practiced that speech. That was an amazing speech, Gabriel. But you don't understand something. Uh, I am really old and I'm going to try to be nice right here. But my wife, she's like more advanced in years than me, okay? 
Like, I'm old, and let's just call her advanced. Like, if she acted her age, she'd die. Like, she's old, and I'm pretty old. Super advanced in years. And that sounds great and all, Angel Gabriel. That sounds great. But the truth is, I don't believe you. He looks at an angel of God and says, I don't believe you. I don't believe you because year after year, we have prayed and we have asked God for this very thing, and we have never been given an answer. I don't believe you. We've already asked for that, and our time has passed. Gabriel, where were you 30 years ago, bro? Where were you 40 years ago? I've been asking for this for a while. Your timing is off. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. If you know anything about the history of God's people, in Genesis chapter 11, there's this Tower of Babel story where all these people are together and they get separated from the Tower of Babel because they're trying to build this temple, this tower up to God and God separates them. And in that moment, you have the creation of nations and languages and tongues and people groups in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 12, this is significant. God goes to a man named Abram and he tells him, I'm going to have you be a chosen people. You and your wife, Sarah, you're going to give birth to a son. And that people, this group that I'm going to make, is going to be the people that reaches all of these tribes and tongues and nations that have all been spread about. And I'm going to do that for you. And what does Abraham do? He says, we're too old. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. <laughs> we're too old. And yet God did something so significant there that the people of God were born and were birthed and were sent out to make uh, his name known among the nations. And Gabriel has shown up. This is significant, resident. You have to get this. The, Gabriel shows up and tells uh, Zechariah, what I'm about to do in the world right now, what God is about to do in the world right now is as significant as Genesis chapter 12. What we're talking about is a new people. And it's coming through a barren woman. What we're talking about is the birth of a new people sent out into the world to reach all the ends of the earth, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations, all the communities, all the schools, all the universities, everybody being reached by this people. Genesis chapter 12 is happening again in Luke chapter 1. That's the message he gets. And similar to Abraham saying to the angel, no, that can't happen. Zechariah looks at Gabriel and says, you don't understand. I'm too old. And I don't believe you. And then in verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. That's a oh no statement. That's a I am Jason Bourne. <laughs> I am Maximus Decimus Armidius. I'm the commander of the Legion of the North. You, you know what I'm talking about? The gladiator speech. I may or may not have it memorized. Don't ask me about it. Gabriel responds with an identity statement. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring this good news. And you missed it. I was sent to speak to you great news. This is what your heart has longed for, and you missed it. I am not a liar, Gabriel says. I stand in the presence of God, and you missed it. So verse 20, so behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. I don't know if Gabriel goes rogue here, but he just lays out the law. Like, I brought some, I've been excited about this, bro. And you want to respond with some weak excuses? No, you ain't talking for nine months. It's a huge timeout. He gets a nine-month timeout. <laughs> you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which had been fulfilled in their time. 
Now, before we get mad at Zechariah, we have to understand that where God was coming to speak to him, God was speaking hope in an area where Zechariah and his wife had only experienced pain and disappointment. Zechariah has been hurt. He's been, uh, that hurt has led to hopelessness, which has led to doubt, which has ultimately led to bitterness. And you go, what, what does this mean to me? How does this matter to me? Here's, here's what this means. Here's what we can learn from Gabriel and Zechariah's interaction. Um, don't let the bitterness, don't let your bitterness over the past steal the moment when God brings a word of freedom to you. Don't let the bitterness from your past steal the moment when God brings a word of freedom to you. God brings healing to you. God brings breakthrough. And that thing you've been praying for for 30, 40 years, in that moment when God finally unleashes the healing, don't you dare let bitterness stand in the way. And that's what Zechariah does. And he's a priest. He should know better. But Zechariah let his past trump the promises and the power of the sovereign God. And he was disciplined for it. He's absolutely disciplined for it. Now, God doesn't punish him for this, but he does correct him for this. This is significant. When he's being told to be silent for these nine months, that is not a punitive kind of thing. That is a disciplinary corrective kind of thing intended for his good, not for his detriment. So this this is a small thing in the text, but I think this is important for us, that, that for believers in Jesus, God doesn't punish us for our sins because that would be redundant. God has already punished Jesus for our sins. So what he does now is he corrects us. Jesus took every ounce of penalty on our behalf. Therefore, God doesn't punish you for your sins because God punished Jesus for your sins. And if God punished Jesus for your sins, he can't punish you because that would be taking two punishments for the same sin, and that's unjust, and God is just. So what's happening in this text is God is saying, I'm correcting you, but there's one that is going to take the punishment for you. And oftentimes we look at this discipline correction kind of thing and we think, man, that looks like God's punishment or God's wrath or something like that. And I, I submit to you because God is dynamic and he's the God who intervenes into the story that what you see in the story is not the wrath of God, but rather the love of God. Because oftentimes we think about the wrath of God as like fire and lightning and blowing things down. But, but the truth is the wrath of God, at least in the scripture, oftentimes is when God does nothing about people's sin. The wrath of God in the Bible is God doing nothing about your sin. Romans chapter one, he gives them over to it. He lets them live in their sin and does nothing to intervene. That is what his wrath looks like. His love looks like him showing up, pouring out his grace and saying, no more. I'm not going to let you harden your heart against me any longer. I'm not going to let you get prayerless any longer. I'm not going to let you be consumed by your selfishness any longer. I'm not going to let you live in that any longer. That is not his wrath. That is his mercy. That is his grace that he's drawing you back into a dynamic relationship with you where he intervenes. His wrath says, you can have it. You can do it. Fine. Harden your heart towards me. That's often what his wrath looks like. It's the difference between a knife and a scalpel. If you were to ask me, Josh, would you like to be stabbed in the chest? I'd be like, well, it depends. If it's a knife, no thank you. If like I have a clogged artery and it's a surgeon who's legit and trustworthy, then please do that right now. It's the difference between a knife and a scalpel. A knife is a punishment thing. A scalpel is intended to heal you, not harm you. But what looks like harming is actually healing. J.D. Greer, uh, a pastor in North Carolina, says it like this. He says, Jesus got the knife of God's judgment 
so I could get the scalpel of God's healing. Jesus took the punishment so I could just receive the correction and I could receive the healing. So what you see for nine months is Zechariah going through a time of correction. If you go later in the passage, what happens when Zechariah finally gets to speak, it's like this brother, the first thing out of his mouth is one, he affirms that his son is going to be named John because people aren't sure if they should name him John. So Zechariah's like, his name was John and now I want to sing a song. I'm serious, like scroll down in your Bible a little bit. Nine months later, his name is John. Give me a mic. I have a song to sing. And he starts rapping. I don't know if he's rapping or singing or what, but he has some praise to God. So this is one of the birth stories that you get in Luke chapter one, but this is not the only birth story you get. There's actually another birth story. There's two birth stories being put side by side in the book of Luke so that he can make sure Theophilus understands a couple of things. One is that God is, he is real, he he is moving, he is active, he is unstoppable, he is not a God who is pushed away from the world he created, rather he's a God who intervenes in the world, and this next birth story is the great intervention. The great opposite of deism is what you're about to read. A God who says, I will not just leave them to their own devices and let them figure it out themselves, that would be terrible, I'm going to intervene on their behalf in the most intimate of ways. So the next birth story is in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, so Gabriel has two missions. He's going back on the field. Uh, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is no ordinary son. This is not an ordinary birth. This is the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There is an intervention coming, and it will be through your son, Mary, and your son will be the greatest of all. He will be a king who sits on a throne forever. That right now there is a kingdom where there is a king reigning. And for believers in this son, this Jesus, you are under the king's rule. And he is the Lord of of all of us. And there's no end to this kingdom. And so Gabriel lays out this good news. This is the best news. This is the proclamation of an intervention like the world has never seen before. In verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, at first glance, you might think that's a pretty similar response to Zechariah, but there's a major difference in this. And one of the major differences is the heart posture and the tone of Mary's response versus Zechariah's response. Zechariah is an old, bitter priest who was mad at God and responds out of anger and says, God can't do it. I don't believe you. Zachariah says, I don't believe you. It can't be done. And Mary has a kind posture and basically asks the question, how's he going to do it? Do you you see the difference? Zachariah says, it can't be done. Mary says, how's he going to do it? So it can't be done means it's not going to happen. How's it going to happen means I believe it can happen, but there's some pretty major biological things that are necessary that I'm not taking part in yet, Mary says. 
I, I don't know how this can be done since I am a virgin. In verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, your child will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God, again, no ordinary son. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age. Man, they cannot leave Elizabeth's age alone. Like every time they mention her, they call her old. Not cool, Luke, not cool. And your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her uh, who was called barren. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Everything is impossible in deism because God has created and he has stepped away. But nothing is impossible with the God who intervenes. Nothing is impossible for a God who's actively involved. No natural inability keeps you from fulfilling God's promise is what this text says. I can't have a baby, I'm barren. No natural inability is going to prevent you from fulfilling God's promise. I can't have a baby. I've, I'm, I'm a virgin. I, I, I've never been able to do that uh, thing that is required for babies to come. And God says no natural inability is going to affect you at all. No sin. This, this, nothing is impossible with God. It goes further than, than just natural things. But it means that no sin is too great for God to reach. Or nothing you are currently bound up in or held up captive to is more powerful than God. Or maybe a little more close to home. Nothing in your past disqualifies, for, disqualifies you from the future promise God has. But all of us believe that. All of us believe, well, I was doing so well and then I messed up on this thing. And so I guess, I guess it's going to take a while for me to be good enough for God to love me again. Or man, I really had a bright future, but then I had a rough weekend. So I guess my whole life is now going a different direction. Nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? Do, do you? Do you pray like that? Do you live like that? Or do you go, no, nah, you know what? I kind of have a pretty good life, man. I have a good job. I have good friends. Or, you know, I'm in school right now. Everything's going pretty well. I don't need much intervention from God. I just come to church because it feels like I probably should. You know, my friends won't judge me. I went to Christian college, judgiest people ever. So bad that if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you still like got dressed like you went to church before you went to the school cafeteria because you wanted to look like you went to church. <laughs> you didn't want to show up and be like, oh man, I didn't go today. There was no real need and desperation, oftentimes, where it looked like in my life, if God doesn't intervene, this isn't going to work. If God doesn't intervene, this isn't going to work. It was like, I probably should go to church. And even if I don't, I should act like I went to church. But I've really built a pretty good world where I don't need a lot of intervention. One of the great schemes of the devil is to make it seem like you don't need God's intervention. Do so you look around and you go, no, I'm actually doing fine. This isn't a big deal. I don't have a lot of impossibilities in my life. If I have an impossibility, I just work harder. I try harder. I figure it out. That's the American way. Well, the Christian way is asking for God to intervene, asking for God to do something on our behalf that nothing uh, could be done unless he does it. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant <clears throat> of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary closes this, this piece of scripture with a, a phrase that all of us should live by. She says, I am your servant. 
I'm your servant. Let it be done to me according to your will. This is not a grip my teeth kind of obedience. This is not a begrudging submission. This is joyful and a daring ability. I heard this commentary and this was so good. Uh, Mary's response is a joyful and daring ability to rearrange her life and her outlook in light of the promises God has given her. The daring ability to rearrange your life in light of the promises God has given to you. So these are the two birth narratives that are put forth in Luke chapter one. You may ask, what does this have to do with me? Why does this matter to me? What does this have to say to me? Here, here's, here's, my, here's, here's my suggestion to you. Uh, here's what I believe. I believe that every single day and every single hour, you and I are at a crossroads where this is still happening. And here's what I mean. I mean that God is speaking to us every day, every hour, and you and I have to figure out what are we going to do? Are we going to act like Zachariah or are we going to act like Mary? What's our posture going to be towards God? If our God is good and our God is dynamic and our good God speaks to us and intervenes on our half, what is our response? Another way to ask this, in a day-to-day basis, in an hour-to-hour basis, are you functioning like a deist that says maybe God created everything, but he's certainly not intervening in our lives? Or are you functioning like Luke chapter one believer who goes, no, 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 God is intervening in our lives at all times. And I'm expecting him to intervene. So here's, here's the, the thing I want you to take away from this, that, that the key to doing anything for God is trusting he is good and believing he intervenes. The key to doing anything for God is trusting that he is good and believing he intervenes. If you don't trust God is good, man, the angel can show up to you like Gabriel from the presence of God can show up to you and you can be like, no, nah, I'm not interested in that. I don't believe you. What's funny, Zechariah, like five verses earlier, was terrified, but he's super bold in that moment. Like, no, I don't believe you. And you, you can find yourself in a place going, I don't believe God is good. I don't trust that he's good. Then this relationship isn't going to work. And furthermore, because I don't think he's good, there's no way he's going to intervene. Why would he ever intervene? God is so uninterested in my life. Are you kidding me? Like my whole life is built around trying to get his attention and please him. He's uninterested in me. He doesn't want to intervene. The reason you think that is because you don't believe he's good. But if you believe he's good and you, you trust that he's going to intervene and you trust that he's good and believe that he's inter- going to intervene, then this can lead to a kind of life that, that asks God to move in places that are profoundly necessary for him to move that you've never even asked for before. So if you trust that he's good and believe that he intervenes, here's what happens. There's an there's a outflow of that. Believing that gives you the ability to surrender to him. If you trust that he's good and believe that he intervenes, then you can surrender. But if you don't trust and believe, then you can't surrender. Why? Because you have a plan, you have things going your way, and there's no way he's ever going to move and do anything about it. If you trust that he's good and you believe that he intervenes, the second thing is, this allows you to trust him with your problems. It allows you to bring things to God vulnerably and recognize that he uh, is an empathetic high priest. He's the God who wants to hear from you. He's the God who understands your pain. He's the God who sees you where you are and wants to move and speak to you and respond to the places where you are hurting. So you can surrender to him and you can trust him with your problems. And then lastly, if you trust that he is good and believe that he intervenes, then you are empowered to pray bold and audacious prayers. 
bold and audacious prayers on behalf of your family, on behalf of your life, on behalf of your city, on behalf of all things. Why can you pray that? Because you know he's good and you believe he intervenes. That he is not a deistic being who's just left us alone to figure things out on our own. He is actively involved in doing stuff. So you have a great ally in God and you can go to him and you can plead with him. And this leads you to walk through life no matter where you're at. If you're in a good season, you can trust that God is good. But furthermore, in every season of your life, you can trust that God is good. And in every season of your life, you can pray and seek God for healing. And you can move forward in the world understanding the big picture that since God has intervened in Christ, he can intervene again in your life. That's a significant thought that when God intervened in Christ, he sent forth Jesus into the world to make a way for us to be restored to him. So God met our greatest need when he intervened in Christ. You know, God's mission in the world isn't to heal barrenness. Do you guys know that God's mission in the world just isn't to heal sickness? God's mission in the world is to heal sin and to restore people back to him. And because God has done that in Christ, you can trust that that he is a good father who wants to give good gifts and you can go to him and be bold before him. You can be bold before him because he has made it possible and he has made a way that nothing should hinder you you and his relationship. There is now an opportunity for there to be a dynamic relationship. And there's now an opportunity for him to hear from you. And the whole world needs to be restored to God. And the primary mission of Jesus was restore the world to God. Therefore, the primary mission of the church is to restore the world to God. And when we pray, we are praying that God would restore the world to himself. And every time God heals, that's a restoring. Every time God does something profound, it is a way of restoring. God wants to give good gifts to his children. He wants to heal them. He wants to serve us. He wants to do amazing things. But he wants to do that for us uh, with the understanding that he has already given us a great gift in Christ. And because that is true, all of these other things fall in line. The prosperity gospel, which is pretty popular in our world, says God wants to give you good things. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it's kind of true. The prosperity gospel is right when it says God wants to give you good things. It's just wrong in how it defines those good things to be. It defines good things to be cars and money and houses and health and wealth. And it misunderstands and misinterprets the the beautiful intervention of God on our behalf, saying he absolutely wants to give us good things. It's just not material possession primarily. It's primarily, and the point of the story is primarily trying to show you that, of course, God wants to give you good gifts, but the best gift God could give you is the God-given gift of himself. The best gift God could give you is the gift of himself. So it is true, God wants to give you good gifts. And he gave you the greatest gift imaginable when he intervened on your behalf and sent Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that God intervened, that Jesus intervened, and daily the Holy Spirit is intervening. This word intervene means to come between so as to prevent or to alter a result or a course of events. Intervene means to come between something and to change and to alter the course of those events. Let's go back to the beginning of the sermon where I said 
Have you ever thought this way, like this thing's never going to change, or that's the way that's always going to be, or this is my burden, it's just kind of the way it is, or I'm always going to be single, or I'm never going to have kids, or this is just my burden, this is just my thing. What if God were to say, hey, I'd like to speak to that. I'd like to intervene in that. Can we talk about that? Would you welcome me into that? God says, I know this season you're in is not good. I know that you're struggling through this, but I'd like to speak to those things. I'd like to talk to you about that. God wants a dynamic relationship with you. He wants to take you somewhere. He wants you to pray big prayers and expect big things. Do you guys know as a church, we should be seeing outrageous things from God? We should. And we should be praying outrageous things to God. We should be asking God. God, you intervened in a barren woman in Luke chapter one, bringing her John the Baptist as her kid. You intervened in a virgin, bringing forth to us the son of God, Jesus, our great true king, our great healer, our great restorer. God, I believe that to be true and I trust that you are good. And in light of the fact that you have already intervened significantly in the world, I'm going to pray with confidence that you can intervene in my life. And I'm gonna invite you to intervene in big ways. Resonate Church, what is your audacious prayer to God? What are you asking God for that only God could do? Or vice versa, when God has come to you and said something crazy, what was your response to him? You're reading the word and God's like, hey, I want you to, I want you to lead a village. And you're like, whoa, God, you don't understand. I'm super busy. Got a lot going on. God comes to you and he goes, hey, I want you to marry that Girl, no, 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 God, I have a plan, you see. It's got to be this way. It's got to be done this way. Uh, God comes to you and says, hey, I want you to move on a church planting team. And you're like, man, God, great. Gabriel, that was cool. But like, I finally got a promotion at work. I'm secure. Everything's good. When God comes to you and says something crazy, what do you respond? Do you say, I am your servant? I want my life to be done like your will lays out? Or do you say, I don't believe it? When God comes to you and says something crazy, which, by the way, is not out of the cards, guys. He can absolutely do it. When God comes to you and says something crazy, and by crazy, I mean biblically true and accurate, but also bold. Not like crazy, like start a new religion. That would be called out of biblical bounds. And your friends should tell you, that wasn't God. That was the devil, right? But when God comes to you and says something biblically accurate and bold, do you say that's crazy or do you say I'm your servant? God, take my life and use it. Do whatever you want. And in those places where you're stuck, in those places where you don't see movement and that family member that hasn't come around or this financial situation that hasn't seen breakthrough, are you looking at God and going, God, I need you to intervene. I've literally done everything. I've done everything but prayed is usually what we do. We do everything but pray. We will find every way imaginable to try stuff and we will never pray. God could do more in like two seconds than you can do in two years because God can change hearts. What is your audacious prayer where you're saying, God, intervene? God, you have to intervene. If you don't intervene, nothing's gonna happen in this place or in this person. What is your audacious prayer? Because there's two kinds of responses you see before us today. One is the response of fear. It says it could never be. It could never be. And one is the response of joy, which says, I'm your servant. God, do what you want in my life. So when God speaks to you, resonate. Don't respond in fear. 
which says it can never be, respond in joy and saying, God, I'm your servant. And pray like you believe, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, this is nothing is impossible with God. So that's what I want to leave you with thinking about today. One, when God comes to you and asks something crazy, what is your response? Two, what is your bold, crazy, audacious prayer to God? What are you asking him for? And if you don't have anything you're asking him for, go back to the beginning and ask yourself, what is that thing you feel stuck in? What is that thing you feel like can't get any movement? And then ask him, God, would you move in that? You know what also is a good prayer? Asking God, hey, God, would you teach me what to pray for? God, would you open my eyes to show me where you want me to pray? And if we can have that kind of dynamic relationship with God, then what you will see is a life built around trusting that he is good and believing that he intervenes. And surrendering to him, taking our problems to him and praying boldly. Trust that he is good and believe that he intervenes. I want to pray that we'll be those kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are real, that you are active, and that you are unstoppable. God, you are not a God who created and then left us to our own devices, but you intervened on our behalf in the most significant of ways when you sent forth Jesus. And God, because that is true, we want to be intervention people. We want to ask you things, God, where you would move in powerful ways, where you would do significant things, God. And Father, we want to trust you in those places where you haven't moved yet and we thought you would have already. God, we want to trust you in the waiting. God, I know in my life, in the times that you've made me wait, I've looked back on those times and seen them to be so beautiful and so good and so rich. But in the moment, I was mad at you. I was disappointed. I was frustrated. But God, I pray that we'd be the kind of people that in every season we know that you are good and we believe that you intervene. And God, if we don't see healing in this life, we'll see it in the next. Because when you sent forth Christ, you said that all things that have been broken and all things that are hurting, God, they will be healed and they will be made right. So God, thank you for what you've done in Christ. Pray that we'd experience more of that, even here today. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.